God, we're, uh, we're grateful that, you, uh, that our story does matter. And uh, I suppose in one sense, uh, our sandwich preferences aren't, aren't a large part of, of our story. But it tells us something about us, that we're unique. Uh, we have unique likes, desires, interests. Um, but God, you know our uniqueness. You made us. You know not only our sandwich choices, but you know the unique way you wove us in the deepest part of our souls. You know our needs, you know our hurts, you know our disappointments, you know our joys, you know our sadness. And um, you didn't mass produce people and make us all the same. You made us with a great deal of variety, an incredible sense of... of, uh, diversity among us. You've made us differently. But God, we're all made for you. We're all made to be followers of Jesus. And you know us. And so I pray as we look in your word this morning that you would speak to each one of us in whatever way we need to hear from you this morning. And the ways in which we understand how to hear from you because we want to be people who grow in our trust for Jesus. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but I'm going to ask Keaton Hendricks to come up here for a second. And Keaton's going to tell us how to shoot a free throw. All right? How many people have not shot a free throw in at least five years? Ten years. Ever? Who's never made a free throw? Okay, okay. All right, so Keaton, why don't you explain to us just real quickly the fundamentals of free throw shooting? What do you do? Hold on, let me give him a mic. Keaton doesn't know this. Uh, Keaton, what's your, what, by the way, so we know we're pa- listening to the right person, what's your free throw percentage right now? Uh, not as good as like so, Okay, we need somebody else so. up here. <laughs> 70 or so. Yes. All right. So tell us real quick, fundamentals. You're teaching somebody how to shoot a free throw in a few minutes. How would, what would you tell them? Uh, well, you put your fingertips on the ball and have it at a 90-degree angle, and then your hand just rests on the side. And you just extend up and follow through. Okay, and then what do you what do you what do you visualize when you look at the rim while we're there? What do you what are you looking at when you look at the when you're shooting? Um, some people look at the front of the rim or the back, but I just look at the whole thing. I mean, it's a, it's up to you. <laughs> if it goes in, it goes in, yes. right? All yes. right, all right, all right. Uh, anything else? Like, what about your feet? You bend your knees? Do you jump? Uh, do you... Yes, I bend your knees and then come up at the same time and follow through and let okay. it go. Okay. What were you last night in free throws, by the way? Uh, I think one for two. Okay. All right. All right. Very good. Thanks, Heaton. Thank you. All right. Now, okay, given that description, everybody right now should know how to shoot a free throw, correct? Given that description, everybody right now should be able to line up at the free throw line and hit about 70% as a whole, correct? Right? Didn't he just show us how to do that? Didn't he just explain to us how to do that? So he told us how. I didn't have him demonstrate. I could have had him demonstrate, but, you know, if I would have had him do that, then shouldn't we have all been able to line up and follow exactly the instructions that Keaton gave? Maybe with a little more coaching from Keaton, and he'd help us. Isn't it that easy? Like I said, some of you have not made a free throw in years, if ever. All right? So shouldn't it be that easy that if we just tell you, do this, this is how you're supposed to do it, Shouldn't we be able to do it? And, and you know that doesn't, you know, we all know life doesn't work that way. 
And we also know in our spiritual life it doesn't work that way because one of the things I want to ask, ask today is how do we become alive, awake, and free? Because isn't it just about a matter of Jesus said this is what you should do. Jesus told us how to do it. There are certain things we know. Okay, I should do this. I should do that. I should do this. I should do that. And some of you have been in church or in church services for years and you've been told all these things we're supposed to be doing. So why aren't we doing it, right? I mean, it's easy, right? We do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. Jesus, should you read the gospels, Jesus shows us how to do it all. But we all know that watching someone else do it doesn't help you know how to do it in the way that you know you would want to do it. We also know that just being given the set of instructions and even if Keaton put together a half hour long instructional videotape and you watched it every day, five times a day for five weeks, I guarantee you, you still will not shoot the ball like Keaton does. Because if all you have is instruction and all you do is watch, what do you need? What's the missing element? The missing element is, the word starts with P-R-A-C, practice. Right? How many times, even in our spiritual lives, do we think about the reality that we have to practice being like Jesus? It will not come naturally. It will not come just from instruction. It will not come from reading the latest book. It will not come from memorizing the entire New Testament. Unless you practice being like Jesus, you will not become like Jesus. You will not be alive, awake, and free. Right? So we're going to talk today about what does that look like? What does it mean we have to practice Jesus, all right? Or practice to be the kind of people Jesus told us to be, all right? Well, we've been talking, the last week we started a series, I'm calling it, Imagine Yourself, Imagine You, Alive, Awake, and Free. Because Jesus, he said he came to give us life. He said he came to uh, give it more abundantly. But he came so we could be alive, which I define that as energized by the joy of God inside of you, awake, which I talked about being aware and hearing and seeing whatever God's doing around you, and free, meaning there is no, there's no obstacles in your life, no sin, no habits, nothing that's keeping you from being as free as you understand God made you to be. All right? And the reality is many of us, if not most of us, would say living alive, awake, and free is an occasional thing we experience, but it's not the pattern of our life. And, and, but Jesus talks about it as if it should be the pattern of our life. So go to the next slide. One of the things, I, the question I asked last week, and we'll probably have this up there on a, a number of occasions, is this. What would your life be like if you didn't have to struggle anymore with blank? What would your life be like if you didn't have to struggle anymore with secrets? Guilt. Fear, pressure, regrets. What would your life be like if you didn't live anymore with regrets? Anxiety, depression, self-condemnation, isolation, unforgiveness. Fill in the blank. There's not one of us that doesn't have something that we say, what would my life be like if I didn't have to struggle anymore with blank? And I'm not talking about just the pitiful ones among us. 
I'm talking about all of us because all of us have issues. None of us are fully alive and wicked free. Let's all acknowledge that. None of us are living at 100% at that level. There's always, there's things in all of us when we, if we're honest and, and actually kind of sit quietly and think it's like, there are things that if we could just, if God could just wave his magic wand over a certain issue in our life and make anxiety go away or the fear of the opinions of others go away or the pressure I feel to conform to others' opinions of me or my, my anxiety about money issues, my frustration with sexual secrets, whatever it is, what would your life look like if you could live without that? So we've been talking over the next slide. Uh, so we've been anchoring last week and this week and we will the next few weeks in Luke chapter 4, and then we'll kind of go other places in the gospel of Luke. Luke is the second of the gospels in the New or third, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Had to think about that. And uh, this is when Jesus shows up, and I explained it all last week. Jesus shows up in his hometown synagogue. In the synagogue worship, there was a regular pattern of two, three, four times a week, a regular pattern of how they did it every week when they gathered. This particular time, uh, he had just done a bunch of miracles in another town, but he grew up in Nazareth, and these people hadn't seen these miracles yet. So it's kind of like he shows up, and his turn, it was his turn to read as a Jewish male. It was his turn to read, and the scroll that was handed to him was the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this from the scroll of Isaiah, all right? And he said, reads this passage, uh, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Actually, stop for a second. I asked last week if anybody would memorize this, I'd give them a $25 gift card at Little Zagreb's. Anybody memorize this? Uh, the Way back there, right behind Kevin Caterberg, who is that? Kevin, who's that? No, right next to you, Kevin. Oh, is that your wife? Oh, yeah, yeah, Laura, stand up. You, you know it? I'm just, this is just random. I totally picked that random. You did NIV? Okay, hold on. Let me, let me cover it up here. Well, actually, uh, turn, turn, yeah, turn, turn around. No, put it back up there because I want the rest of us to follow. Laura, go ahead. Go ahead. All right, way to go. Way to go. I could, I could have been a little more random in picking somebody, but I, she was the first hand I saw shoot up back there. So become friends with Laura and go out to eat with her and Kevin right now. So, all right. Um, I just, again, I'll encourage you. I'm not going to have one of those every week. So don't, don't come next week expecting one. So, um, but this is what he read and he read it from the prophet Isaiah and then he read it. And again, these people, the, the tension was pretty thick because they knew Jesus had done some pretty incredible things in the town 30 minutes away, healing people, um, healing people that were sick, healing lepers, casting out demons. And they're like, this guy was a carpenter. He grew up in our town. We knew him. We went to school with him. You know, we built houses with him, whatever. He says this, and then he's done saying it. And then he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, every person in that synagogue knew that he meant, I am the one that the Old Testament has been talking about and you've all been longing about for years. I am the one that will set you all free and alive, awake, and free will become your reality. I'm that person. And, and, and this says every eye was fixed on him as he, ta- as he said that. But then if you read the story later, they end up wanting to push him off a cliff because they get angry because they realize that he doesn't, he, like God won't with us, he doesn't do it the way they want him to do it. Just like we don't 
God doesn't do things in my life the way I wish he would, right? I, I, I try my best to be a consultant for God. He doesn't always listen to me, right? These people, as we often sometimes too, we get a little frustrated with God because he doesn't do things the way that we would like it to be done, all right? So, so this, is, this, this passage right here, the, the mission of Exodus Church, we stated as release life, and this passage is where that comes from. And the mission, when somebody asks me the mission of Exodus, you know what the mission of Exodus Church is? It's you. It's people. It's not an institutional mission. It's not some conceptual mission like world peace. It's not some, uh, you know, let's take care of the poor. Those are all realities. But the mission of Jesus was people like you, people like you, and people like you. It was people. His mission was to set people free. Not globally groups of people free. Yeah, he'll do, but he will do that through individual people that he came to set free. So the mission of Exodus Church is the mission of Jesus, which is we believe our mission is us. Now somebody might say, well, that sounds pretty self-centered, man-centered, whatever. No, but that's what Jesus said. He said his mission is us. His mission is taking people who have brokenness, blindness issues, all kinds of spiritual issues, big and small, which we all have. And he says, I came to set those people free. Go back to the passage for a second here. Go back one, Matt, yeah. You know, he talks about his mission is the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. And, And I said last week, we tend to think, well, it's a good thing that Jesus came for those people. But the reality is you, we, I, we all need to read our names in those blanks because every single one of us falls in the category that he's talking about. Every single one of us are living life much less than alive, awake, and free and fully alive in the spirit of God. We're much less than that. So if you think he's not talking about you, then pride is your issue and that can mean a whole other sermon, okay? So, but everybody has he's talking about. He's talking about that for all of us. So his mission, to go to the next one. His mission is you. His mission is you, alive, awake, and free. Jesus came. He died on the cross. And he was resurrected because he wanted people like Alan Meyer to be alive, awake, and free. He knows your name. He knows your sandwich preferences. But he knows the very constructs of your heart. He knows what's in your soul. He knows the wounds. He knows your secrets. He knows the ways in which your soul has been shriveled or expanded. He knows all that. And his whole mission is individuals. And if we, and so what I I, I refer to it as Jesus wants us to be big people, big hearted people, full of the spirit of God in our lives. So the, so the vision of Exodus Church is we want to be a community of people who are big people in the eyes of God. Not impressive, but big, open, large capacity for whatever the, he wants to pour in us through his Holy Spirit. So the goal is to become big people. Now, you'll see in the bottom here my little gray italics you know, comment. Okay, but how does that happen? I mean, is there like some transformer kind of booth I just walk in and all my all my anxieties or fears or pressures or secret sins they all go away I mean uh, if that's the way Christianity works then sign me up and tell me where the room is and I'll go 
And, you know, it's interesting because you read in, in the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus spoke those words, he went on a kind of a tour. I'm, like, I'm, not, I'm not mocking Jesus, but, you know, he went on a tour of healing. Leprosy, blindness, sickness, demonic issues. And it seems as if when it comes to physical healing, Jesus is able to heal instantaneously. But it seems like the pattern of how Jesus heals our souls, our spirits, from unforgiveness, from anxiety, from fear, from whatever, secret sin, darkness, wounds, whatever. It seems like the way Jesus heals people in that area of our lives is more through what I'll just call a cooperative friendship. And showing up every Sunday and every Sunday and every Sunday, why it's good, it doesn't change you. You have to practice some things, kind of like back to the free throw. There are certain, and and, uh, Dan referred to it a few weeks ago in our sermon, some people call them spiritual disciplines, some people call them spiritual habits, but there are certain things we do that put ourselves in that cooperative walk-along-the-road friendship with Jesus that he then has access to our hearts. It's kind of like, um, I mean, I'll pick on Alan Meyer again. Alan's an entodontist. You never want to see him. He does root canals, all right? If you see him, nobody's happy, right, to see him. But let's say you have a root canal. Let's say, let's say I have a root canal. Root, whatever it is, root canal. Is that right? That's what it's called. And I think, okay, I have this root canal problem, and I know Alan does this stuff, so I'm just going to pray that Alan will heal me. Well, or I'm hoping that Alan will just show up at my house someday with all of his instruments and just do it for me. All right, that's what I'll call the extreme passive kind of approach. I'm just going to sit here until God does, comes and does it to me. I'm just going to sit in my home until Alan comes with all of his tools and his anesthesia shots and all that stuff, and he'll do it for me. That's the extreme passive. The other extreme, aggressive, active uh, extreme is, you know what, I can do this myself. I got some pliers out in the garage. I got some ice, I'll ice it down, and boom, you know, what? I can do that. I can do it myself. Both options, we understand, don't lead to healthy healing. The passive option or the active option. Here's the option that I think the, the Bible clearly portrays for us. I call Alan Meyer up. I'm active. I make an appointment. I'm active. I have to figure out the day of my calendar. I have to get in my car and drive to Alan Meyer's office. I'm active. I get out of my car. I open the door to his office. I'm a little bit scared, but I'm active. I'm active. I get in his office. Matt Newsom here for a root canal. I'm active. They say, come on back, sit in room number five and sit in the chair. I'm active. Sit in the chair, please. I'm active. Open your mouth, please. I'm active. At that point, boom, I have to be passive because Alan knows what he's doing in my mouth. I can no longer be active. But I had to be active to get myself in the place where I could be passive. Does that make sense? And God's the same way. The great physician, he's the healer of our souls. We have to... The way he's designed things is he trusts us as responsible, autonomous human beings, gives us the freedom. We exercise that freedom to put ourselves in a place where he can actually do his work in our lives. But in the sense that we expect God to do these, you know, holy house calls, yes, he can, but that's not the normal way in which it seems which God works with people. 
He expects us to do the things that gets us in the place where we can lay down, open our mouth, and be passive. But there's a whole lot of activity and action that we have to do to get ourselves to that point. And that's why, that's why we do spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines, you know, reading the Bible and things like that. Because what we do is we're putting ourselves in a place where Jesus has access to parts of our soul. All right? Now, I want to talk about... I'll go to this next slide here for a second. Because here's, th- here's all the things we're supposed to be according to Jesus. This is Jesus, just in Luke. These are the kind of people we're supposed to be. This is the kind of things he told us to do. And again, the question is, how do I become the person who does this stuff naturally? Who loves my enemies? Who does good to those who hate me? That's hard. Who doesn't judge others? Who forgives others? Who pays attention to how I hear? In other words, listen to the voice of God. Jesus tells us in the Luke, go heal the sick. Well, how do I do that? How do I become that kind of a person? Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Give to those in need. Repent. Invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. How do you become the kind of person who does the things that Jesus tells us we could and should be doing? And I suppose if we, each of us graded us on those things, we'd be, we'd be happy if we had a B minus or a C plus average. But isn't the point of church following Jesus to become the kind of people who do the things that he says we can do? And again, the question is, how do I get to that point? And that's where we talk about spiritual habits. Go to this next one. And and also in the Gospel of Luke, a few chapters later, this is the words of Jesus. Even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into, say that word with me, practice. All right? He doesn't say you hear the word of God and are instantaneously transformed. We put the word into practice. You have to practice forgiveness. You have to practice generosity. It will feel awkward for you, just like shooting a free throw for the first time in a long time is going to feel awkward to you. You practice those things because you're then giving God space and access to change the very constructs of your soul. All right. This morning, what I want to do is I want to talk just about two large concepts or, or, or disciplines, I'll call them. Two disciplines. And then over the next few weeks, we'll hit some other ones that kind of fall into that. But there's two things that I'm going to encourage you to think through and, and do this next week. All right. And to do that, I've got a couple of my, uh, my street signs there. Um, how many of you, any time this week, disobeyed a street sign? Anybody, anybody, come on, come on. How many rolled through a stop sign? All right, how many went over the speed limit? 36 instead of 35? Yeah, the rules for the stop sign, get everybody up. Yeah, I do that, yeah. All right, now, here's my two road signs. And you've seen these before. If you haven't, these aren't real metal, so I can carry them this time. Don't think I'm that strong, all right? Just, it's actually plastic. All right, first one, go to the next slide. All right, first thing. First habit there's two road signs. If you obey both these road signs throughout, if if you become the kind of person who naturally obeys these road signs, you will be alive, awake, and free. Now, there's other things we do to practice these things. But the first thing is, uh, and this is what I'll say this way, you have to be, I have to be ruthless about the elimination of contempt from my life. All right? Now, contempt. Contempt is that emotion that you feel, and we all feel it. My guess is every one of us has felt it multiple times this week. When you kind of have a sense of raise your eyebrows at somebody 
or you have this small little seed of disgust like, oh, I can't believe she said that again to me. You may not say it out loud. Maybe it's about your spouse. Maybe it's about one of your kids. Maybe it's about your roommate. Maybe it's about your coach. Maybe it's about your boss. Where you're like, it's that, it's that feeling in your soul where it's, you look down on them, but nobody knows it because we're really good at covering that up. You know, you walk by a homeless person in the street and you're like, can they get their act together? You don't even say that out loud. Maybe some of you do in your car by yourself, but there's that momentary... In your marriages, there's those times, I guarantee you, everybody that's married has had a time this week where you felt this for your spouse. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands, all right? Where you like, okay. I mean, my, my wife said something the other day and I kind of responded in this kind of way and, I, and she called me on it and I thought, why do I do that? Why do I like, you think I'm some kid? I mean, I, it's that kind of a, and, and the, the reality is Jesus came so that you and I could live a contempt-free life. Notice the issue all through the Gospel of Luke with the Pharisees is the Pharisees are experts in this. They love contempt. They love doing it in very spiritual ways. As a matter of fact, when Jesus ate with the prostitutes and the thieving tax collectors, they actually said, it's the, the Greek is translated this way, Jesus, why do you eat with such scum? I mean, that's a pretty strong word coming from these religious leaders' mouth. But they're saying they're, they're kind of low lives. And the Pharisees were constantly showing contempt for anybody that wasn't as well-behaved as they are. And Jesus actually says in the Gospel of Luke, don't judge. Now, is there a time to exercise discernment? If you're sleeping with somebody else's wife, I'm not judging you. I'm exercising biblical discernment telling you that's wrong and you need to stop. It's going to kill your soul. If you're going to cheat on your income taxes, I'm not judging you if somebody says to you, you shouldn't do that. That's not, no, that's, that's biblical discernment. Judging is when I look down on you in a spirit of disgust and kind of mild spiritual anger. So don't get that mixed up. We are called to judge in a discerning kind of way what is sinful and what is not. But what we often add to that is we add to the element of disgust. I might tell somebody, hey, I, I think what you did when you said that to that person, you were really being hurtful and insensitive. I can say that in a way that's not judgmental. I can, or I could say, what are you thinking? You, you just totally, you were a jerk to that person. Well, I'm being a jerk and telling them they're a jerk, right? So there's a way to exercise discernment without being contemptuous and judgmental. I want to challenge you this. I want you to keep, and I'm going to, well, with the end of service, I'll pray that the Holy Spirit will give us all this kind of little bell that when there's a moment of contempt in your life this week, that God will bring it to mind, like, here, here's the situation. Not that you should beat yourself up about it, but then, you, then, then you're forced to think, God, can you set me free? What, what gets me to the point where I feel that way toward people? So I'm not, I'm not saying you need to feel all your, find all your contemptuous moments this week so you can see how bad you are. No, you need to ask Jesus, Jesus, where, what, how, help, me, help me heal from that. Where's this coming from? Where's this odor coming from? And you, if you don't think you show contempt toward people... Ask somebody in a really careful way, and my, you know, 
I remember, I remember I was in a group one time, this is nobody from this church, I was in a group one time and somebody told me, yeah, you remind me of somebody I used to work with and I didn't like them. It's like, I, I met this person for half an hour, it's all I knew this person. And I said, why? And they said, well, you kind of seem a little judgmental. And I'm just like, oh, I can't believe you said that about me. But what she was saying was, I feel, I feel something from you and how you relate to people in a half an hour's time. All right? So what I'm saying is, if you just ask God, God, will you show me those ways in which I am not treating people with the honor and the dignity and the goodness and kindness that I want to? Doesn't mean you agree with everybody. Doesn't mean that, but you don't have to respond in contempt. Um, I actually kept a journal for a while where I was every morning I got up and I just tried to think: Was there any time yesterday where I was contemptuous in thought or deed or word? And I'm embarrassed to say that it had more things in it than I thought I wanted to have. But it was good for me to realize, you know, God, help me. I don't want to be this kind of person anymore. Set me free from this kind of captivity and oppression and blindness. Because I don't know what's going on. Second thing. Second, second and last for the day is be ruthless about the elimination of hurry from your life. All right? Now, what does hurry feel like? If somebody says, hurry up, let's go, hurry up, hurry up. What, what, what happens in you physically? You kind of start tightening up. If you're in a hurry, I'll ask this by raise of hands, who was in a hurry driving to church this morning? I'm not going to ask any more about that. Okay, good. If, when you were in a hurry driving to church this morning or getting ready this morning, were you treating others around you with love, compassion, and patience? No. When you live your life in a hurry, when I live my life in a hurry, I am way less likely to treat people with tenderness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. So her, I'm not, we're not saying to be lazy, but I want you to close your eyes for a second. I want you to close your eyes and imagine in your mind's eye, Jesus in a hurry. Just keep your eyes closed. Imagine Jesus in a hurry. All right, now open your eyes. How many hours in the day did Jesus have? 24. How many, day, how many days in a week? Seven. Well, gee, I have a lot to do. I have, I'm just really busy. Well, who had the biggest mission of the whole history of the world? Jesus. But he took times to rest. He didn't seem like he was ever in a hurry, but there were things that had to get done. Absolutely, he had to get things done. He wasn't lazy. Nobody's going to say, Jesus was just lazy. But think about hurry in your life and think about when you're in a hurry, do you think you're more or less likely to hear the voice of God interrupting you throughout the day? When you're living life in a hurry, are you more or less likely to pray for someone as you think about them as you're driving in your car somewhere? When you're in a hurry, are you more or less likely to respond to your spouse with kindness and mercy as opposed to a snap judgmental comment? Somebody, somebody uh, once called their spiritual mentor and they said, hey, I, I'm, my spiritual life's kind of out of whack. I need some, I need some, uh, I need to kind of update. I need to kind of refresh myself. So help me, what do I do? And the guy said on the other side of the phone, well, number one is um, be ruthless about the elimination of hurry from your life. So the guy writes down, be ruthless about the elimination of hurry from my life. Okay, what's next? And the guy on the phone said, there is nothing else. 
That was his spiritual advice. Because again, if you live this, if you live a hurried way, you're not going to love well. And isn't our goal to love well? Isn't, isn't the goal of being alive, awake, and free somebody who loves abundantly well and generously, incredibly well, who is merciful, who is kind? But not, I'm not, we're not talking about becoming like, you know, Mr. Rogers, you know, nice guy all the time, but kind and listening to God. And you, yes, you do have to get things done. I, I try to avoid even use the word hurry with my kids, but I'll say, will you please get ready quickly? You know, hurry, you know, but hurry is a state of the soul. And it's interesting too. Hurry is probably the first, first cousin of worry, right? When we worry, Jesus says, don't worry in the gospel. Don't worry about what you eat, what you wear, the clothes you're going to wear. Don't worry. Worry typically comes from, I don't have, so we hurry in our souls to take care of those things we're worried about, right? Hurry and worry. Which Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry about where you're going to get these things. But we think, well, I got 24 hours in a day. God didn't give me quite enough. So I got to make it. I got to make more of it. I got to sleep less. I got to work more. I got to run myself ragged because I got to get this stuff accomplished. And it usually stems from worry or some kind of anxiety. So we hurry our lives up to make do for what we think we're lacking. And if you're like me, you know what I'm talking about. Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the suggestion this week. So I already said, when it comes to uh, contempt, ask God to make you aware of moments of contempt. And then the last thing here, with hurry, intentionally, I'm going to encourage us all, myself included, engage in the discipline of slowing this week. Now, not if you're driving in the car in front of me. Please don't do it then, <laughs> all right? I'm not saying that. Don't be a jerk on the highway. But... Maybe, as a discipline, pick the longest line at Kroger. Intentionally slow yourself down. Maybe stop doing something that adds too much time to your day so you have more time to drive somewhere so you can actually enjoy the drive and not hurry. All right? Make a decision this week not to do something because it will add hurry to your life. So when you're trying to decide, should I go to this? Should I do this? Should I go to this place? My parents for the weekend, should I do this? Make a decision not to do something this week that will add hurry to your life. And make a decision that intentionally slows yourself down. All right? And then see when you've given God that space, what happens. Because I think you'll see he'll, he'll begin, you can hear God, you, you, can, you can show kindness and mercy to people that you never even saw because you're too much in a hurry. I mean, the, the parable of the Gospel of Luke, we're not going to read it today, but we're, the Good Samaritan, there's a guy beat up on the side of the road, and a priest and another religious worker both walked by and didn't help him out. Now, we don't know why. We're not told why. But my guess is it was either hurry. They were in a hurry to get something done and have time to help that person. Or it may have been a small degree of contempt. Why am I going to help that person? They must have got themselves in trouble, stupid person. But it's amazing how much of the, even the stories, read through the Gospels and how much of the stories where Jesus talks about people that are living life in contempt or in a hurry. And you realize how much that works so much against the alive, awake, and free kind of life we want. So go to the last slide here and we'll read it again, the red one, and then we'll do communion. This is again the very thing that Jesus said he came to do. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news 
to the poor people sitting in the chairs at Exodus Church on Sunday morning. He sent me to proclaim freedom for those who are prisoners here this morning, recover his light for all of us who are blind, to release all of us from our oppressions, big and small, and to proclaim that the Lord is favorable toward all of us, that he's good toward us. He wants to be abundant in our lives. And that's what we have to believe. Jesus is not holding out on you. He's not. Here's how we ended Exodus. Uh, We end with taking communion. And uh, we do that because in the end, it really is about giving Jesus access to parts of you. So the symbolism of this, we take bread, offer it to you, you'll tear off a piece, we dip.